problem with having a meeting in the house of prayer. We're not used to stopping. We want to be 24-7 in this room, and so it's hard to stop when you're in the presence of the Lord, but it's not going to stop. Uh, we're just going to shift into a different time in the meeting. So I want to welcome you all here. My name is Thomas Cogdell with my wife, Amy. Uh, we lead the house of prayer here in Austin. And um, the summer of 2008, we traveled to Europe with our family, ended up in Herrenhut, which some of you may recognize is the town in Germany where Count Zinzendorf led the Moravian community, and they did many things, among them a significant work of reconciliation and unity, uh, community, of prayer. They had a 100-year prayer meeting that happened in that place, um, and then of outward expression of missions uh, to the nations. And so we were very excited about what the Lord would do there, and, uh, but didn't really know what to expect. And one of the unexpected pleasures was uh, getting to meet Father Peter Hawkins, who was there at the gathering in Herrenhut. Um, and much to our surprise and delight when we expressed a desire to some, someday have him come to Austin, uh, he said yes. And it's a great privilege to have you with us here, Father, Father Peter. Let's just welcome Father Peter. So they bought a house and they're in the process of renovation, um, a house of ministry and of reconciliation. And so uh, we are in the same process here in Austin. And so it's a delight for us to give towards the kind of thing that we want to see happen here in this place. And so Frank, I on purpose put the, the basket next to you so that you can shepherd, just make sure it makes its way around. Is that all right? Great. So tonight, make a check out to the Austin House of Prayer, um, and we'll make sure that everything that's given tonight goes to Father Peter, minus our administrative charge. So, Father Peter, come.
you know, often we're so excited about the things we're learning now and the things that are going on now, we think this is that's the whole deal for us. And it maybe it's just a building block. Now, what I found with this was what was being shown was that the second coming of the Lord, this is what Paul calls in Titus the blessed hope. And <coughs> it is the Holy Spirit that forms this hope in us. And you see, the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us, so we are already given a knowledge of Jesus. And as Jesus is revealed to us, this is like a foretaste. It's a beginning of what we'll receive the fullness of when the Lord comes in glory. So it's the, the, our present experience of the Spirit is always, in some sense, foretaste. It's always, in some sense, first fruits. <coughs> and, um, and sometimes people talk about just accept Jesus and you'll have everything now. Well, is this true? Well, in one way it's true because everything's in Jesus. But the idea that we've, that we've got everything now, or even can have everything now in the sense that there's nothing, nothing more to learn, nothing more to receive. This is not true, never true. And so what I saw was the Holy Spirit forms the hope in us. And the hope is a longing. Paul speaks of this longing. And, and he even uses the word groaning. And I think in a house of prayer, I'm sure you have this experience of groaning that comes from the Spirit. Now the groaning is part of the longing. But it's, it's also linked to suffering, travail, working through the obstacles, and so on. But it's, the groaning is something very important. And I find that people who have begun to experience groaning in their prayer, and they have no idea what it means. And there's even some people who think something's gone wrong. And, and they ought to be more joyful all the time. They shouldn't have this groaning. Well which has its suffering side. This is not true. Anyway, the, you see, the, the, what the Spirit places in us and creates in us and deepens in us is the longing, the hope. And this hope has substance, it has content, it's not wishful thinking, it's already the presence of the reality which we will experience in fullness in the age to come. And this is foundational. Therefore, the message about the same coming, it's not about insider knowledge or advanced knowledge or timetables or knowing exactly how the countdown is going to work out. This is a deception, in my view, and it is unhelpful. It does not bring hope. See, the test of messages about the second coming, about their authenticity, is whether they really form hope in us. And, and whether the, they bring a joy. And if they bring argument about what's going to happen next, and this sort of thing, this is not the work of the Holy Spirit. And, um, and you see, it's not that the Lord, the Lord doesn't never give, and this is not the point of prophecy, not the point of prophecy to give us a detailed knowledge of exactly what's going to happen. Um, that's never the point of prophecy. Prophecy is to prepare us, but to warn us against obstacles and dangers, but it's also to prepare
vision. Prophecy expands our horizon. And, but it never gives all the detail. Um, because, you know, the, it, this is not its purpose. And so, you know, people want to have some sort of insider knowledge. You know, I know exactly what's going to happen. You know, that feeds our pride. It doesn't build the hope. So, um, we, that's not what we want. It's not what the Holy Spirit brings. So, you know, because, um, you know, the, the second coming, it will bring the full revelation of Jesus, seeing him face to face as Thomas already prayed. The full realization of salvation, deliverance, you see, of body, soul, and spirit. Uh, this is very important because the whole dimension of everything that it means to be human, and some of this is available immediately. We don't have to wait for. Forgiveness of sins, we don't have to wait for. The, uh, the gift of the Spirit as first fruits, we don't have to wait for it. I mean, we may have to work through one or two things, but we don't. You know, it's, it's not a gift of several years down the road. Um, but our sanctification, the full sanctification of all our thoughts, now, this can never be an instantaneous thing. It's going to be a process over time. But the full deliverance of the body in which it means really being delivered out of death, the final victory over death, this only happens with the resurrection. And so we can't have that straight away. Um, but this is part of the promise because Jesus came, it says in 1 John 3, 8, to undo of the devil, that all the consequences of sin and rebellion are, are, are definitively dealt with on the cross, but the fruits of this come to us in various stages, and the fullness is the deliverance from death and the resurrection of the body. And this is very fundamental, because God made us with bodies, and our bodies are important, and they belong to the sphere of God's salvation. And, um, you know, now, um, I think that often there's not much teaching about this because the focus is all on soul, it's all on spirit, it's all on um, what's interior, the work of God in the heart and so on. And it's easy for people to sort of assume that our bodies are just an encumbrance. Um, and... Um, Death is just a deliverance. Well, um, there can be ways in which death is just deliverance, but it's also um, a consequence of sin. Um, and um, in 1 Corinthians, in the 15, in the chapter on the resurrection, Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he describes death as an enemy. Now, Jesus has transformed death by undergoing it himself, so this isn't a teaching on death. So, but all, I'm, all I make, the point I'm making is, is to do with the salvation of the body. And this means, and then what lead, this gets connected with the whole of creation. So, the, the God's work of deliverance salvation is going to involve the whole of creation. I mean, this 
aspect was always prominent in the Jewish Israelite tradition, but of course it's strongly there in the New Testament. It's there in especially in Romans 8, where Paul speaks of the whole creation sort of groaning in expectation. He speaks of you know the whole thing being delivered from its bondage to decay. And and and, and this is important. And um, there's a lot in the Old Testament prophets about how creation has been affected by human sin. You know, Paul speaks about the whole creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. See, it's like he's saying creation is fed up with the sins of human beings and it, it's long for the day when human beings are totally delivered so that creation won't have to suffer anymore. And that's the biblical perspective. Okay, um, but you know, so this is all in, involved. Now, um, when I said yes to the Lord for this call about second coming, um, one thing that happened immediately, I want to say, all the doors for me to Messianic Jews opened very quickly, because this is an important element in the preparation for the second coming, the, the, the preparation of the role of Israel, and also of, the, of Jerusalem. Now, the Lord, with the context of Messianic Jews, I was led into two things immediately. One was beginnings of initiative toward Jerusalem Council, two, which began in Dallas, and which I will be visiting Messianic rabbi in Bronx at the beginning of this uh, after I leave here. But, uh, and so there were Israeli Messianic Jews involved in this, but it was sort of being led by Messianic Jews in the United States, which is where the movement is largest. But um, I was also led at the same time into an initiative of. Um, praying into the relationship between Rome and Jerusalem, which was highly prophetic and which was being pioneered by two Messianic Jewish brothers from Jerusalem, Reuben and Benjamin Berger. And looking back, you see, I can see how the Lord knows exactly what he's doing. And so this contact with these brothers from Jerusalem I didn't understand the full significance of it immediately, but more and more I understand this sort of being connected to Jerusalem from the beginning of the second coming call is absolutely fundamental because all things are in some way moving towards Jerusalem. Um, and of course with this particularly, there was a new opening up of the whole prophetic dimension to me and in fact I was involved in weeks of prayer and fasting um, the first one was in Rome on the edge of Rome in 1997 May 97 and the Lord was actually leading us on a prophetic journey from Rome to Jerusalem which we came to understand was the way the whole church has to be led and um, and we were being led through it prophetically. It was extremely difficult, which is not a surprise. Um, <laughs> and 
not a glory, glory all the way. Um, but it, it was led by the Spirit in an amazing way. And we had no program where we went there. We just knew that this was to, it was, we were praying into the relationship between Rome and Jerusalem. We used to live by the Spirit. And we were led by the Spirit each day. And in fact, by, by about the third or fourth day in the week, I, we'd achieved everything. We'd gone through everything that I thought we were there to do. So we're thinking, what is happening in the last two days? You know, a, and in fact, the most important part was the last two days. So I won't go into that more. But what my point here is that the full opening up of the prophetic my experience has been connected with the, with the links to Israel and Israel is the land of revelation and I think when you go there you experience this, it's like the heavens are open there in a way that is more marked than anywhere else and however also the battle is fiercest in Israel and biggest of all in Jerusalem so if anybody feels called to Jerusalem Know you're in for a very tough time and make sure you have a lot of intercessory cover because I've known people go to Jerusalem and they've just been more or less knocked out by the severity. They couldn't handle the severity of the battle. Um, now, also, see, I've been involved in the sense of work for unity in from most of my adult life. Um, I wasn't brought up Catholic, actually, and I became a Catholic when I was almost 22 in 1954, which is now quite a while ago. And in, in 1955, I received what, you know, I, I, I say now the Lord spoke to me about uh, unity, but I, wouldn't, I didn't use that terminology then. And, um, and the Lord convicted me of arrogance because when I became a Catholic, I was pretty, pretty arrogant and disdainful of other Christians. And one day I made a negative remark that I thought was a joke about the Archbishop of Canterbury. And um, a very godly Catholic woman who heard this there, who I, everyone respected a lot, you know, who thought she's the holiest one of us. She said to me, Peter, what you just said is greatly displeasing to Almighty God. And that shook <laughs> That was a turning point for me. So, you know, it says in Proverbs, you know, do not despise the word of rebuke. So um, I learned that lesson in 1955. And from that point, I knew that I was to see my upbringing as an, as an asset, not a handicap. And, um, and that I was to live in this spirit. And from that point on, which was before Vatican II, I had a great heart for unity. And this has developed over the years. And of course, I thought that was the whole heart of my work. And the second coming thing showed me that this wasn't. That's an element in the preparation for the second coming, but it's not the whole thing. And but also, what I also found when I opened to the Messianic Jews is that the Israel holds the key to reconciliation of Christians. Because renewal for all of us 
Christians is connected with going back to the roots, going back to the biblical revelation. And this is a revelation to Israel and a revelation um, in the midst of Jewish people. And it's also discovering Jesus as, as a Jew. You know, I didn't notice for years that how the New Testament begins, how it begins in Matthew 1 with the way that, you know, about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it says, son of David, son of Abraham. In Matthew 1, 1. But this is say, Matthew saying outright the human identity of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And both of these are saying important things, different aspects of it. So, um, anyway, this, this was very important. And so I took the, the unity thing was taken up and in a sense it received its full context. But what it also received was a whole new effectiveness. Um, and, um, and so this, this was very important. And um, so this, you know, I came into the charismatic movement of the Trans and Spirit in 1971. I'd been a priest seven years. I was teaching in the seminary, um, and the Lord immediately gave me contact with Pentecostal, and that was a great blessing. But thank God, I was able to see that this would, would see this in a totally positive way because a lot of charismatics have tended to look at the Pentecostals, this particular from a Catholic charismatic, looking at Pentecostals as people. The main point is to avoid their excesses. Now, the truth is, and I later was led to study, and I did PhD to study the whole history of Pentecostal minimum charismatic. It's very clear the charismatic move could not have happened without the Pentecostal movement happening first. And so we should have a huge gratitude to the Pentecostals for being people open enough to receive this when the churches were not open enough to receive it. And so this, this was a big lesson in itself. And um, it's also part of a humbling because, you know, as the Lord leads you on, you realize how much you don't know. All the things that you thought you had this all sorted out, um, the Lord blows the whole thing open and it becomes bigger. And this happens more than once. <laughs> now, another thing that happened when the Lord um, opened up the second coming and said the second coming this is the heart of your work preparing the church not just the catholic church for the second coming but this is crazy how can i do that seeing an individual priest and so on um, but that's not the point the point is whether it's a call from the lord because the lord calls you you know it's possible <laughs> um, so <coughs> Um, but another thing that happened, and this was a great surprise, the Lord began to bring young people to me. Because all my life, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd had to work when I was a young priest, or I was sent to, I had to be told to run a youth group or something like this. And, I mean, I never thought I was any good at it and, um, and had any impact through that. And I thought my work is more theological. I'm, I'm sort of... Um, you know, I'm more involved in teaching 
sort of adult, intellectual adults, and this is really my, my gift, etc. <laughs> and the Lord started bringing young people to me, and not just young Catholics. And, um, and the result of this was amazing. And see, they were impacted by this message of the Second Coming. And in fact, um, in the, it was March 96 when we got the Second Coming call. Over the next year, 12 months, four young people um, received very clearly a call to this. And one was a young American Catholic. One was a young French Catholic. No, she was a girl. One was one young French guy, Catholic. One young Hungarian Catholic woman. And one non-denominational uh, Korean. And... Um, and all of these had a sort of supernatural kind of dimension of how these things happened. I won't go into the details. But I felt it was to gather these people together. So I gathered them together. And for, I tried to arrange a meeting in Scotland. It just didn't work out. So in the end, we ended up going to a place in France that has influenced me a lot. And this was a place where a whole group of people, mostly from the Reformed Church, France had been praying for the second coming for 50 years. And it was a very significant place for me because I found that places have a significance in God's purpose. And so we met there, and it was the most incredible week I've ever lived in a way. It was a real like Pentecost event all week. And so I'd gone expecting to teach about the second coming, but it was impossible to teach <laughs> the whole week. I couldn't teach anything, hardly. Because every time we began with worship every morning, once we began with worship, the glory came and everyone was out. So, you know, <laughs> any hope of, of getting people to sit down and listen was gone. <laughs> so this happened the whole week. And, um, and it was very funny because in the end, I thought, you know, we, get, we need to gather these four together. In fact, there were 16 of them when they came. And this was interesting. There were five Catholics, five Reformed, five Evangelical, and one Messianic Jew, who I never met before. And I thought, this is highly significant, this, this combination of the numbers. Yeah. And um, with the one Messianic Jew. And we met every year since. And the net group's grown, but there's always been Messianic Jews. The first two years there was one. Since then, there's always normally been more than one. And a Messianic Jews basically from Israel. And so this week was extraordinary. In fact, you know, I can remember all kinds of things from this week. Um, well, one was that when even when we got in the dining room for lunch and asked somebody to pray the blessing at the beginning of the meal, about three people would fall under the table. <laughs> oh, it was great. Um, 
But at the end of the week, all of them knew that something amazing had happened, that something of huge importance, and that was transforming them. And you know, they were excited and they wanted to go on. And you know, the chance came later to talk about the second coming. But so this was the beginning of a whole work with young people. And in fact, this has become the most, in, for many ways for me, the most important part of, of my ministry. And it's arising out of this that, um, see, when I went back from the States to England in 96, after 20 years living in Maryland, I went back and, in fact, I was, the one word I got when I got trained back, well, first of all, I got this sense I was to go back to Europe, and it, it, the word was not to go back to England, but to go back to Europe, and that turned out to be significant. But then I went back to England, but the, what, the clear word I got when I was praying about going was, I want you to be more integrated into the church institution. Um, and um, this is not a word that at the time you receive everywhere. Um, <laughs> So I knew it meant I was to be in my own diocese and relate more closely to my bishop. But after six months, the bishop invited me to go and live with me in the bishop's house and become his um, chaplain or secretary, which is normally the role of a younger priest. And I knew from this word I got that I was to accept. And, um, and this, in fact, was something very important. And it integrated me much more into, into the Catholic um, sort of institutional structural framework. Um, and this was part of what we all wanted. Well, when I finished with there, I knew I, I, I sensed I should move to the continent of Europe. And I ended up going to Austria. And I knew I should go to a place where I had the total support of the Catholic bishop. So I went to Vienna. And there were other reasons for that, also connected with Messianic Jews, but I won't go into all of that. But um, you see, when I, in Vienna, I wanted to live in a place where there was a chance for the young people to come and visit the young people. And so I went to live in a mother house of a convent of nuns. Now, they were very nice, and it was possible visitors to come, but it wasn't a suitable place for young people to come much. And the nuns, and unfortunately, their life was not very attractive to modern young European <laughs> women. <laughs> when young people used to come to see, young girls used to come to visit me, the sisters always thought, maybe they'll want to join us. And I mean, when I was talking to the sisters, that was the last thing on their minds. <laughs> but I didn't tell them that. But I always had this sense, maybe one day I'm to have a place, a house. And, um, but I knew I wasn't to plan it or do anything. If this was not just a nice idea and it was from the Lord, he would show me and there would be a sign. And I received the sign at the end of 06 because I had a message from somebody, the intercessor in Brussels. The intercessor is another part of my story in a minute. But, to say there was a community that had existed 
for very, very long. They said this was the border between the Holy Roman Empire and so on, and, and the East, the barbarian East, from beyond, you know, the Slav peoples and so on, or the descent, um, and from Hungary, etc. And then, um, of course, the Iron Curtain, during the years of communism, at the nearest point, that's about three miles from where we are. Death march of Jews in March 1945 walked down the street Kaiser. This place is full of history and logic, Nazis. And um, so this question of reconciliation has has become prominent. And here I should mention another thing that happened when I was led into the second coming and Israel thing is I began to find that people were coming up to me and saying, the Lord has told me to pray for your ministry. And so they began, and I thought, well, I need to keep these people informed. So I started sending out a monthly message to tell these people what I was doing and um, so, what, so people would know what to pray for. So I've done that ever since, and the list has been expanding you know, throughout the world ever since. But the people, um, I think this is extremely important Lord has underlined this several times, the importance of intercessory support, and I'm extremely grateful for this. Somebody here had a word I was sent earlier to say there were 12 angel, warring angels going ahead of me. This is not the first time I've received a message about angels. There's a very prophetic man who came, Frenchman, who came and gave at the, year, at the time of this meeting in France, in 97, who came and said he saw um, four angels. I, I had four guardian angels because he could see them. Now, I've never seen any angels. But um, I know that it's been a big protection. And this is so important because I dread to think what would happen if I had not had this protection. Um, but so these things are. Um, the house is really beginning to open up and you see it, we are very close to the border of Slovakia it, uh, this we get by car to the border with Slovakia in about eight nine minutes and um, to you could get to the border of Hungary in a half an hour and um, this is where the Iron Curtain was and um, the, but the capital of Slovakia is just the other side of the border. And so actually from our house, we can be in the center, city center, downtown Bratislava in 15 minutes. And this is amazing, the capital of the next nation <coughs> in 15 minutes. Now, we've begun a prayer meeting week every Friday night in our house, and the Lord's bringing people and most of them come from Bratislava. <coughs> we have language problems because I don't speak Slovak, nothing like German. I've been improving my German while I'm there, and that's a big enough task. You know, when you get older, it's not so easy to learn a new language. Um, you find you're looking up the same word in the dictionary about 50 a week. <laughs> <laughs> Languages while you're young. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that prophetic word, that is. 
on, on impressions of certain things, some of which are not entirely wrong, because they're reactions to things that often have been unhealthy, but they do not represent the whole picture, certainly not from the origins. See, one of the evangelical criticisms of the ecumenical movement was that it was not focused on missions and evangelism. And there's a lot of truth in it, but of course it was not true at the beginning, which is what a lot of these people don't know, because this began at a conference of missionaries, of largely evangelical missionaries, and um, who were convicted of the sins of rivalry and competition that blocked the effectiveness of their evangelistic work. And this was how this whole thing began. And so the idea that um, it was like this from the beginning is not true. This was a later trend that wasn't healthy. Okay. So anyway, I look at all that sort of stuff. Then I got two chapters on two pioneer figures who were both French and came from the area not so far from each other. One was a French Catholic priest called Paul Couturier. And he, um, he was a remarkable pioneer, and he saw that the whole work of unity has to be rooted in conversion, in deeper conversion of everyone. And, and this was one of his major contributions, and he developed the whole thing of what he called spiritual ecumenism. But for Couturier, spiritual ecumenism uh, was all work for unity having to be rooted in the spirit and in prayer. It was not a separate aspect. What happened later was people think spiritual ecumenism is a few people praying for unity on the side, and the real work is in the theological dialogues and other things. And, and that was not the vision of Couturier. So this was very important, and he sort of, um, <coughs> he was a major pioneer in the Catholic world, and had to suffer for this somewhat, and, but I won't uh, say more about this, but you know, there were essential elements, the whole total centeredness on Jesus, the importance, centrality of repentance, conversion, and um, for everyone, all of this was, and the prayer of Jesus in John 17, all of this was central to what he taught. And I go talk about this contribution. Then I have from a Protestant, the reformed, the man who actually founded this group where we had this first meeting, young people in 97. And he had a whole emphasis. He, he added two dimensions to this vision of Peter. One was the Israel-related element, which was strong in him. And this is why I first began to learn things about Israel, his teaching. And, um, and then the other thing was boring to the second coming. And that this was essential for the work for unity. And so this influenced me as one other contributory factor. So I described these. And then I outlined in five chapters the key elements or characteristics for future ecumenism in the spirit. The first is it's totally Christocentric. Totally centered on the person of Jesus. It's the only way to unity of Christians, of those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. The second is it has to be led by the Holy Spirit. The way of reconciliation, 
this is a new way. Several times in all the last <coughs> years, I've been on things where the Lord has said, you are walking on a new path, a path that hasn't been walked on before. And you can't, there are no models for it. You know, we all want models to know how to do this. You can read a book saying this is exactly how, how do you build unity or how do you do that. And you'll love these sort of books. But the Lord's saying you, the whole work of, of healing of reconciliation, it cannot work on that sort of basis because it hasn't happened yet in the way it's needed. And you've got to be led by the Spirit. So this is another dimension of it. The third is that it's rooted in the Word of God, biblical revelation unpacking of the full biblical revelation because what we've done in the divisions is we've taken a bit of revelation and opposed it to other parts. And it, so the whole work of unity is reconstituting, bringing together all the elements that are part of the biblical revelation. And the Lord allowing these things to come together in us. And, um, and we've all got part of the picture, but you know, there's parts that you know we've we've never connected with, and this is essential to the work of unity. And the fourth is that it's rooted in Israel, in the Jewish roots, the Israelite roots, um, and this affects all the above ones because you know the, re the biblical revelation is a revelation to Israel, and it, it's, it sees its culmination in the Messiah of Israel who is becomes the saviour of the whole world. And so this is foundational. And the last one, of course, is oriented to the second coming. This is an essential element of the work of unity. So I've got a manuscript to complete on this. And so that's something if I find the right place for it. I met the publisher actually last week in Minneapolis, but I'm not sure this is the right place for this, uh, but he's willing to look at it. But anyway, that's one thing I'd share with you. So, um, I think um, if anybody has a question that's a real question for elucidation and not, not for a sort of big discussion, um, you know, I'd be willing to try and answer.
come from many different backgrounds. Um, at present, um, you know, the immediate area we live in is a strongly Catholic area of my background, so most of the people who come to our prayer meeting are Catholic, but the people who come to visit to stay from further away, these, these come from a variety of backgrounds. In fact, we've got staying with us at the moment a young Polish Pentecostal girl who um, wanted to stay because she's doing a four-month course in Bratislava, and she thought, oh, this is a good chance she can live with us in on the bus and stay to Bratislava. And so, um, uh, what is common? Well, you know, I think, um, see, we, um, I have a chapel there, which is sort of, in some ways, it is a Catholic chapel, but it's, it's a kind of restrained Catholic chapel. <laughs>
I knew a sort of godly um, widow in Hungary who was one of intercessors, and I thought maybe she'll come. And, um, and the other said, no, you've got to find a couple. Yeah, and this was very wise, you've got to find a couple. So I thought that's going to be much more difficult to find a couple, actually. And anyway, um, in, I, I went to visit um, in England at one point, this stage, and they, the, the, the director said, we cannot buy the house until we found the couple. So I go to England, and I go to visit this couple, who in fact a couple who came near the, but I went to see them, and they shared with me the Lord was placing it on their heart that they should give up their jobs. She was a nurse, he was a social worker, and work for the Lord. And even then I didn't connect, I think, I can't think why I didn't think I was going to mind. But anyway, they shared this. So the following week, I'm with other friends of mine who know this couple, who are very prophetic. And um, they said, we were praying about all this. And then suddenly, the wife said, while we're praying, the name of a couple has come to me, you see. And so, after this, she told me who it was. And it was this couple I'd visited the week before. And I said, well, I, last week I was with them, and they said, the Lord's already put it on my heart to leave their job, and I never they said, well, there you are. So anyway, <laughs> it, it ended up this couple are there. They came. And um, they have a sense of call, which is absolutely necessary. They didn't know a word of German when they came, which makes it difficult um, for them. And, you know, so the wife goes shopping, and she doesn't know if she's buying away because of all stuff with labor in German. And, um, but so occasionally she buys something she thinks is something else. Um, <laughs> But um, the, it, this couple, the husband is Catholic and the wife is Brethren, Plymouth Brethren. Now, in England, a Catholic Plymouth Brethren marriage is highly unusual. There <laughs> <laughs> can't be more than one or two others in the whole of Britain. <laughs> but they, 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 they've lived with this since they were married. And, in fact, when they were in England before they came, they used to go every Saturday evening to a Catholic Mass and every Sunday morning to Brethren Assembly. <laughs> they went to the Catholic Mass and the fact that the wife was Brethren didn't bother anybody. But um, <laughs> they, they went to Brethren, and in fact, the husband was a Catholic, were, were deeply troubling to them. <laughs> and, and so, <coughs> but they persevered, they continued going there. Bless them, and, and they won them over in the end to this being, you know, him being okay somehow. They couldn't understand it perhaps, but you know, they came to see maybe he, he, he is a real Christian. So, um, anyway, um, they came, and, and you see, so this aspect of unity is there in their marriage in a way. This is, so, and I think this is highly appropriate for this whole work in light of all I've shared with you. So um, this we began with this base community of three, but um, you know we've we've got um, four guest rooms besides the garden house. And um, when I went to the realtors, they asked me two questions. One, how much are you willing to pay? <coughs> and the other was, what future are you looking for? 
I think this covers things about my ministry, the vision, the details, this house, and so on. And so, if, if anybody else wants, does anybody have another question? I do. I don't really think in those terms, to be quite honest. Um, what I do know is the process is a process of purification. And that may point in the direction of becoming smaller. Um, um, on the other hand, I think you have to be very much on guard against the spirit of judgmentalism because remnant are the ones who remain faithful to God. 
the remnant are not the whole of the chosen people. The remnant are the ones who carry the host, the message of faithfulness, but and they're praying for the rest of the people who are the whole of the chosen people. And often people have made the mistake of assuming that the remnant, which generally means themselves, um, <laughs> are, are the elect, they're the chosen ones. And this is totally foreign to the biblical concept of remnant. Also, the remnant do not decide who belongs to the remnant. They don't even know who belongs to it. They're known to God, but it's the faithful ones, and it's important because it's encouragement to ones who are faithful in the middle of a people who are not showing great signs of faithfulness. See, and this is to the prophets, Jeremiah, that they're praying for the whole people. But, and he is faithful in a situation without much encouragement. You know, Elijah thought that he was the only one. <coughs> Of hope and of hope being engendered. 
and so I'd like to invite those of you who have a heart to pray for hope to abound to come up right now. So just come up, stand up, come up if you have a heart to pray for others that hope would abound. So John, you want to ask anyone else? Hello? Father and Son? Very good. <laughs> anyone else? Now we're just going to have uh, some time of prayer, and um, Felipe, could you jump on the guitar? Sure. And we're going to spread out, and if you would like to be prayed for, for your hope to rise, then come forward, we want to pray for you. And I have a couple of senses of that in particular. One is, for me, one of the things I experienced uh, with Father Peter in Heronhood, and again tonight, is the idea of hope for the nation of Israel. Um, and so that's not something you get inundated with in the news. And so for us to have that hope requires cultivation and the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you want hope for the, uh, for the nation of Israel, come up more. Many of you probably already have it. But, uh, but if you want more, come up and we'll pray for you. Second is hope for the second coming. If it's something that's kind of died on your radar screen, you were surprised tonight that there was a lot of talk about the second coming of Jesus. You need that hope to be built up in your heart. And so come forward, we want to pray for you. Other areas where you feel like you need hope, just come on up and we'll pray for you. Okay? So we're not, we don't have any time. Feel free to leave if you need to. Feel free to stay.